0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, So we are going to be looking at some parables on grace this morning. Um, We've been for uh, about a month now just looking at different parables and different things that Jesus was teaching through parables. And we'll be bringing up and reviewing some of those principles uh, as we get into uh, Matthew 18, but also Matthew 20 this morning. Uh, These are two parables that are both related to grace. Um, we'll first be looking at what Michael read for us in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And then we'll also be looking at Matthew chapter 20. And one of these parables relates to the release of a debt and mercy. And then the other relates to grace in terms of wage and payment. So there's a similarity and contrast. In both of these parables, you have people who are undeserving. And you see people being tested by the generosity of the person who has authority over what he possesses. We see that in Matthew 18 with the person who had authority of this debt that the servant owed. But then in uh, chapter 20, there's a landowner who has authority to pay what he wills and how he uses uh, his money and how he pays it tests the people who are working for him. So we'll see that in these Parables. Uh, Something I'd like to start doing before sermons uh, more often is also uh, praying before the lesson. So I'd like to do that this morning, if you'll uh, bow with me before um, we get into the lesson. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we've been able to come before you and sing these songs of ardent praise. Thank you so much for loving us with such an unfathomably rich and glorious love. Father, please bless your word and please be with us as we listen. Please embolden the openness of our hearts and help us together to have week after week, day after day, a more diligent love for your word and a more attentive ear to your teaching and that our humility would be deepened and that by hearing your word, our mutual resolve to be pleasing to you would flourish and thrive. Father, we know that you instruct us to ask and we'll receive to seek and we'll find and so every part of what we do we want to beg you to be a part of it we want to ask you to help us and um, never presume anything from you but to always ask as servants for you to do what you alone can do and so please do that as we listen together in your son's name amen Um, so let's start with chapter 18 and um, i'll be reading this uh, again And we'll just kind of talk through it um, after we read it. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out And found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. So this parable, um, like many parables, is to address something that the disciples asked or some interaction that was happening. And actually, this parable, in a sense, is the climax of a series of things that Jesus had already taught. You could think of chapter 18 as a whole, as a sermon. And some of the sermon involves interaction for further teaching. And all of it has been relational. In the beginning, it's when Jesus talked about humbling yourself like a little child. And if you cause someone who humbles himself in that way to stumble, then it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck, be thrown into the sea. And then he talks about not despising those little ones. In verse 12 through 14, he talks about uh, if one sheep goes astray, he goes out and seeks for it and rejoices more over that one than 99 who are already in his flock. In verse 15 through uh, 20, he mentions um, what to do if somebody is sinning or sinning against you and how to handle that to restore them to repentance again. And at the end of this, Peter asks the question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter seemingly very generously says, I mean, seven seems like a pretty big number to give someone second chances. So how about that? If you remember... I think it was two weeks ago when we did a lesson on Ephesians 518. We were thinking through what the Bible says about intoxication and drinking alcohol. And we spent just a moment trying to think about how did Jesus answer difficult questions? How would Jesus challenge people to think through things? And we mentioned that Jesus most often did not think of Matters of godliness and faith and the love of God as technical legalities. And he would always challenge people to think beyond just the technical answer, right? And we see the same thing here that Peter's question does not give enough honor to the extent of God's grace and character. And so Jesus challenges Peter's technical thinking by saying 70 times that number. And I don't think he's saying, like, okay, so let me. Maybe expand that a little bit. I'll keep tabs up to 490. And once they reach that limit, then I can, that's my cutoff point. I think we all understand what Jesus is saying is you need to be expanding what you're willing to do so far that it's just, there is no limit, right? And so this, Jesus's response, I think fundamentally is meant to cultivate a personal understanding of something difficult to grasp. And we've talked about that with the other parables, that parables oftentimes illustrate difficult concepts by using more relatable and simple things and so it's meant to create a personal understanding to make us more reflective and have greater convictions because of god's grace and i want you to remember this from the last lesson remember in luke 18 we looked at the pharisee and the tax collector you know the pharisee praying like god oh i thank you i'm not like other people certainly not like this tax collector And we talked about how Jesus will sometimes in parables use caricatures, so not characters, caricatures, people with seemingly exaggerated characteristics that are very easy for us to condemn, and that's kind of the point. We look at them and we think, evil, that person is evil. Always, always, the fingers (laughs) just go right back and say, well, that's meant to draw attention to something in you. That is much more subtle and easy to justify and so Jesus uses these caricatures to equip us to take note of things personally that are much more subtle that we're more easily deceived in and this is obviously how it is with forgiveness and I I want to bring up here Peter had been walking with Jesus Peter had seen Jesus interacting with people Peter had seen Jesus forgive people heal people he'd heard his teaching he knew the law he knew Israel's history he knew God's mercy toward Israel and their history. He knew about events like David and Bathsheba and the mercy shown to David. And so I think it's important to understand Peter's question is a fair question. Mercy, God's mercy and forgiveness is a legitimately difficult thing to grasp. And even with all of this time spent with Jesus expanding his understanding of God and his mercy, he still is struggling to understand this concept. And so I think it's important, like all the parables we've mentioned, to really try to put ourselves into the situation here and not just, again, like we've said, watch the parable like we watch something entertaining. We need to be investing ourselves into it. So what's significant about this parable? We have a king who is wanting to settle accounts with his slaves in verse 23. And in verse 24, he's settling these accounts, meaning he's, he's trying to resolve them, trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's the end we can put on these different accounts that I have with my servants. And in verse 24, shockingly, there's a slave who owed him 10,000 talents. Talent is kind of a weird number uh, or a weird, uh, it it means something more than just uh, a gift that you have. We think about talent obviously as an ability. Literally a talent was 6,000 denarii. One single denarii was one single day's wage. So One talent was worth an enormous amount of money. Uh, More literally, 10,000 talents would be 200,000 years worth of work. Um, I've heard it said that 10,000 talents was actually more money than was even in circulation in the entire Palestine country. It's more money than they would obviously then accrue from taxes in an entire year. So this is a shocking a shocking amount of money. And I think we need to think about this for a second. How does somebody manage to accrue that degree of debt, right? This would be, uh, when I worked out the numbers, just trying to think about this reasonably, about 11 billion dollars. See, imagine how does somebody accumulate 11 billion dollars worth of debt? That person is an expert at spending insane amounts of money, extraordinarily irresponsible, and look at verse 25 this isn't just a single guy living it up he's married and has kids this person is extraordinarily irresponsible and foolish and yet we see when he pleads with the king in verse 26 obviously the weight of this debt when he's called into account well now it's real right but he says have patience with me and I'll repay you everything how? how? You know, I imagine that this is a great opportunity to scoff at the servant and really maybe try to lecture him about how foolish he's been and even how foolish that request is. And you should have thought about that at the hundred denarii first of your debt. And now we're 10,000 talents deep. It's too late to talk about repayment, right? And yet, without condition, without lecture, without rebuke, no words. It just says he felt compassion, released him, forgave him his debt. It's over. But that's not where the parable ends, is it? He goes out in verse 28. And I think if we read this slowly, it becomes more of a tragedy. I think it it can be exciting to read verse 28 at the beginning. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. So if you just pause there, you could think like, well, this is good. You know, man, he just received so much mercy, I bet he's going to do something very kind here. You know, like, wow, wouldn't you be motivated to just right away, you go out and you think, well, man, who owes me a debt? Let me pay it forward, right? And I think it's meant to be shocking and I think Peter and the other disciples would be shocked as he continues, he seized him and he choked him. That's not how he was even treated by his master with the 200,000 years worth of wages that somehow some I I have no idea how you could ever owe that much money and yet he wasn't treated in that way you know in a hundred in our eye that you know if you have it in normal terms a hundred days wage that's fairly significant that'd be a large amount of money but comparably that's ultimately we were obviously able to read the parable and understand that's 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 nothing in comparison And we understand that the mercy he first received, in a sense, that mercy itself, reading the parable, we understand that that mercy became law for that individual. That as soon as he walked away without any words or any conditions, the grace he received alone, the fact that we see this person treat his fellow slave in this way, we are able to understand this is unjust because of what happened to him first right and so because of the king's mercy we understand that there's some kind of expectation that's been broken here and notice in verse 31 the fellow slaves they were deeply grieved when this other slave pleaded with him in the same way he's not willing to listen and he throws him in prison until he can pay back what he owed and again just the strange situation how do you pay back a debt in prison you know, you're eliminating the person's able to work and make any income. So it just, it doesn't make sense on any level. It's like the the guy is just out of his mind. And so he's called back by the master and obviously the master hands him over to the torturers after telling him he should have had mercy on his fellow servant in the same way that he had mercy on him. This is the one thing I want to, to make some points on with this parable before we look at Matthew 20. The one thing, he treated his master's mercy and he received mercy the same way that he had been receiving the imaginary money and taking that debt. And that last word you see there, just carelessly. You know, obviously at some point, you know, maybe at like, okay, 10 denarii, 50 denarii, all right, you know, it's normal debt for a normal person. Okay, 9,000 talents, 9,500 talents, 9,800 talents. I mean, it's just it's never-ending. And obviously there's not a thought or any wisdom on really comprehending the magnitude of what was happening. And in the same way then, he just took his master's mercy, gave no thought to the magnitude of what just happened, just went on his way as if it were nothing, just like the debt he had received before. And I think this helps us have insight into lessons that we can apply from this parable. Obviously, we need to be forgiving, right? That's obviously the point that Jesus makes. But what was the most important thing that the servant needed to do or didn't do? He didn't understand or take to heart internally what was done to him. That was the tragedy of the parable. And what he did to his fellow slave was just a manifestation of the fact that he did not take into mind or into heart the magnitude of what was done. So I think this helps us understand sin. When we sin, we are not comprehending the cost of what we're doing, or really behind the veil, as it were, beyond what we see, the expense that's being accrued on God's part as we cannot escape our relation to him, just as this slave, when he was forgiven of his debt, he didn't go off as a free man, disassociated from his master. This is not an indentured servant. He is a servant of this master, period, forgiven or not. He cannot escape the fact that he is accountable to that master, debt or no debt. And so what we have to understand is, our hearts, our minds, have been so broken by the carelessness of sin when we see Jesus dying on the cross and especially as I'm sure we can all relate that we hear about Jesus' death and so little impact is put into our heart so little care is given for what Jesus did and that's just the reality of it understanding Jesus' death and truly being humbled is not just this natural thing and so I think we understand as we read about Jesus, as we think about who God is, it should, it should cultivate a greater fear and reverence that his mercy can be very easily neglected and taken for granted. The most important thing in our faith is for us to learn and explore the magnitude of what God has done in releasing us, releasing us from what to us we oftentimes think of as just an imaginary thing. Sin is just this imaginary concept, forgiven. My life kind of goes on, and it's just nice to be outside of God's wrath. But from the perspective of the master, and at the time of the accountable, uh, the, the time when that was taken into account, it became very real. And I think this puts into perspective how important God's commandments are. Jesus said, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." God is not just arbitrarily telling us just to do or do not random things. Wouldn't it have been nice if the master of this servant had said, you know what, there's going to be a danger here that I perceive. Let me try to actually work with you and help you not fall into the danger of taking for granted what I just did for you. Let's, let's try to be uh, co-workers to caution your response. The reason why we need God's commands is because if we appreciate the depth of God's mercy, even just intellectually, that should lead us to understand that we desperately need help to not take for granted what God has done. We we need to just submit to whatever God says, and submission in faith, obedience of faith, cultivates greater reverence, greater thankfulness, more self-awareness, more awareness of God, being hospitable to others, denying yourself to serve the needs of others, serving people's spiritual needs and bearing their burdens because of what God has said and what he does in his example in imitating that, it changes our heart, it opens our heart. And so God's commandments are valuable when we understand that we need to learn to protect God's mercy and our awareness of God's mercy. His commandments keep us from being careless with things that we can so easily fail to appreciate because of pride. And I think in verse 35, understanding how important this is, when Jesus said, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. There is no amount of obedience that justifies a person holding a grudge There's no amount of obedience that justifies gossip. There's no amount of obedience that justifies ending relationships out of bitterness and anger and malice that love would protect and try to build up and keep unified. When people stand before God in judgment, most fundamentally it is the measure of mercy that will be the measure of God's judgment. And maybe to think about this really practically, I grew up with Christian parents and I knew a lot of people who grew up with Christian parents growing up. Most often the reason why people would fall away as they grew up is they were seeing their parents and going with their parents to church, but they weren't seeing their parents live out God's mercy or exemplify the kind of humility and gratitude consistent with mercy. And too often, we are so easily, and I am so easily, prone to just be satisfied with whatever obedience I am currently, maybe in my own mind, capable of, when more fundamentally, God is calling us to be enormously humbled by what is impossible for us to ever truly imitate. The most important thing of our faith, the most important thing, is understanding the depth and lengths of God's forgiveness for us. It's that mercy that stabilizes us, it stabilizes our relationships, it motivates us, it encourages us, it comforts us. And if we lose touch with God's mercy, then it should be like we have lost everything in the process. Let's look at chapter 20 verses 1 through 16 with grace and wage chapter 20 verses 1 through 16 just very briefly here this parable is also an extension of previous interactions Uh, I know that it's the beginning of a chapter but even if you just look back at verse 30 of chapter 19 just the very last verse before the chapter notice but many are first will be last and the last first and then if you look at verse 16 of chapter 20, so chapter 20, verse 16, at the end of this parable, so the last shall be first and the first last. So in chapter 19, Jesus was confronted by the rich young ruler, teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments, you know, and he mentions some of them and the rich ruler says, well, I've done all these things. What's, what's I, what am I lacking? And when Jesus then further challenges him, again, not on legalities, but by the grace of God, He's unwilling and he goes away sad. And then he is asked by Peter, Well, but we've left everything and follow you. What what then will there be for us? And he encourages them that in the regeneration of the Son of Man, he will sit on his glorious throne, and you all shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first, will be last and the last first. And then you notice chapter 20, verse 1, at least in my New American Standard, says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. And so just like Jesus was responding to interactions before the parable, it's the same for chapter 20. And I think that helps draw out more lessons when we understand where it fits in the interactions Jesus was having. So let's read chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. He went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, did the same thing. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for what for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. So what's significant in this parable? This is a very unusual parable for a number of reasons that we'll talk about as we talk through it. But one is the landowner is unusually diligent to find laborers. You know, so he goes at the beginning of the day, it says early in the morning. He went out in verse one and he found laborers for the day, sent them into the vineyard. And then he goes out the third hour, goes out at the sixth hour, the ninth hour. And very surprisingly, at the eleventh hour, he goes out again in verse six and finds even more people. And so it's just kind of strange how diligent he is just to keep, just every time they go to his vineyard, he goes back and he keeps finding more and more people. And his method of paying the laborers was also unusual. So here now at the end of the day, the twelfth hour, You have all your laborers here before you. And he tells the foreman in verse 8 that he wants specifically the 11th hour workers to be paid first. And then you go down the line, getting back to the first. And obviously, if you're the first, you're thinking, oh, man, this is nice. If they're getting paid a denarius for only working one hour, boy, our pay grade is about to exponentially increase. So let's see what we get. And then, obviously... Everybody just receives one denarius, just a fair, day's, a fair day's working pay. And so they grumble and they uh, are exposed in verse 15 being envious not because they warranted any more than what he gave them, but they were envious because his graciousness had drawn out jealousy of their heart. And so that last question, those last two questions really I think are the key of the parable. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. And so I think the focus of the parable is the character and the generosity of the landowner exposed envy and pride in the laborers. And just want you to think really quick, who's most thankful, by the way, for the pay at the end of the day? It's obviously the 11th hour people, imagine they're very aware, like, wow, I'd... I don't know why he's giving us so much money, but this is this is great. And you imagine when he came up to them at the 11th hour, I mean, they've been standing on idle all day, and they said, nobody hired us. So just like the master in Matthew 18 could have talked more about the situation, like, okay, what's wrong with you? You know, these workers who just haven't been hired into the 11th hour, it's like, okay, is something wrong with you? I mean, are you like extremely lazy and just have bad reputations? Why Tell me more about why you don't seem to be interesting to people looking for work. But no, they just, there they are, and so he hires them. And so I think it's important to understand that Jesus is ultimately addressing pride and perception. Uh, Just very quickly, I think in a similar way, in Luke chapter 7, at the end of the chapter, Jesus is in a Pharisee's house, and a woman reputed to be a sinner comes up to Jesus and is weeping on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair and she's anointing him with oil, uh, perfume. The Pharisee, seeing this, says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. He said, there was a man who had two debtors. One owed 50 denarii, And the other 500, he forgave them both. Who will love him more? And the Pharisee said, well, I suppose the one whom you forgave more. Jesus said, you've said correctly. The point of that parable isn't that the Pharisee was less a sinner than that woman. It's a matter of perception. Jesus would later say in Luke 13, when people came to him and told him about Pilate mixing the blood of some people with their sacrifices, and he would say, do you think that the people of Jerusalem... Are any worse sinners? I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this denarii in the parable is not saying that, you know, some people literally are earning a fair wage for their salvation. You know, that there's some people that, oh, they work so hard for the Lord that by the time they get to heaven, he's only giving them what is fair for their labor that they've invested. That's, that's really not the point. It's a matter of perception, Right? And pride changes and destroys our perception of God's grace. The rich ruler, he was called to give away all that he had and give it to the poor. And he was unwilling to do it. And what Jesus was addressing was his pride and his perception. Because he had in his mind that he was already fit by his past and his obedience in the past. He was already fit for eternal life. And then Peter, it's, it's a seemingly good question in verse 27. Jesus affirms it when he says, well, what's, what's in it for us? He, he confirms that, I mean, unthinkable grace is given to you. Everything that you're losing, God is going to make sure that you are more than repaid for it. But I think this parable is a warning for Peter's attitude. That if we really understand God's grace, it puts an end to that question. We see that further... In verse 20 of the same chapter, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, says, well, you need to command that my sons here, my two sons, sit on your right and your left. And Jesus would say, that's not not how it works in the kingdom, looking for honor. The one who is greatest should be your servant in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is addressing pride and perception in this parable. We need to perceive ourselves more like the 11th hour people and what we need to do is see that in the parable again, these caricatures, we look at the first hour people and we say, evil, look how arrogant they were, it's awful. And again, we are being made students of our own hearts and being able to more easily see this caricature that Jesus is pointing out. So here's something very important from this parable. I think we all know pride is the enemy of faith, right? But I think here really is something important from this parable pride blinds us to the riches of God's grace it makes it look like God is never doing enough God is never giving enough when we suffer we become embittered against God or we lose something we think God why me and what that exposes is we think we've earned something by merit that if we really saw what God gives us trials would become nothing but reasons for joy and praising God and so Pride destroys our ability to really comprehend God's grace. It destroys our ability to see God for who he is. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3. This is a passage that we've looked at recently in our Bible classes and I think is good um, to look at again for um, this point. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. We look at the Apostle Paul. and We see that's, that's somebody who obviously was a hard worker, right? We look at his life and we think, well, how could I ever measure up to somebody like the Apostle Paul? And I just want you to listen carefully. Jesus said the last will be first, the first last. I want you to think in verse 8 at the beginning of the reading, how does Paul see himself because of God's grace? Ephesians 3 verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and competent access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory." You know, we, we can easily think that if anybody could consider themselves merited for salvation, surely the Apostle Paul, right? But because of his comprehension, his personal understanding of all that God was giving, all that he had done in Christ, he understood that really he was the least of all saints. And because he was able to see himself in such a low position, he was able to be passionately motivated by the reality of God's unfathomable riches in Christ and I want you to look at verse 13 again and this transitions into the last point of the lesson how did Paul see his tribulations and I think this is meant to be a lesson from that parable that the landowner he obviously just wanted to be generous I mean calling people at the 11th hour he knows the work's just about done he knows that They're not going to deserve what he's going to pay them. He's paying them what the first laborers had agreed on for a full day's wage. Just wants to be generous with what he has. And so the greatest joy and ambition of grace, the true effect of it, is to suffer to give the most undeserving, the greatest reward. This is why this parable is very often related to the relationship of Jews and Gentiles. Because the Gentiles were people most undeserving of what God had done. And God called people like Paul from a Jewish background, no, you suffer, you give to them who are most deserving, the greatest grace and the greatest reward. And Paul got it in verse 13. I want you to see where he learned this. Go back to Matthew chapter 20. Um, Again, with the placement of parables, um, not just the things that happened before illuminate some parables, but sometimes things that happen after continue to be illuminated by parables. So on this note, the greatest joy and ambition of grace is to suffer to give the most undeserving the greatest reward. Look at verse 17. This is immediately after Jesus teaches this parable. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. What was Jesus' greatest joy? What was his greatest ambition? You know, we've talked recently that God's will and God's glory is not that he makes good people better not that he makes righteous people more righteous, but one of the most fundamental teachings of scripture is already what we've seen in Matthew chapter 18, that we are unfathomably unworthy of what God has done. But God's greatest joy and ambition is to be generous, to suffer to give the most undeserving, the greatest reward. And this is what he would teach his disciples. Again, verse 26 through 28, after... Uh, John and James, their mother, asked for this special preference. He then again corrects them and says, it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servants. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Continuing the thread of that phrase we've noticed, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know what's interesting about this parable or this section as well? the very end of this chapter there's two blind men who beg for mercy Jesus in verse 34 moved with compassion touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him easy did you know that God's grace made it just as easy for the rich young ruler who didn't follow him and just as we look at those blind men we think yep they got up and they followed him It's how easy it is for everybody. It's a matter of perception. I want to end the lesson with a warning. As we suffer, as we have things that we fear losing, as we go through trials, the progression of our faith, as we strive to become more mature in how we obey God and submit to his will, and as we strive to be effective in doing his will, it is so important we never lose sight that God's grace makes it easy it is easy to get to heaven. God makes it easy. There are trials. There are losses. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. But we embrace those things because of the grace that's been given to us. The blind men who are healed, we see that and we say that was, that was so easy for them. It cost so little. And so as James would say, the man in the humble situation should glory in his high position. And the man who has riches or possession should glory in his humiliation because God equalizes them all by the extension of his grace so the greatest joy and ambition of grace is to suffer to give the most undeserving the greatest reward that is the true effect of the grace of God if we understand it so I leave the the lesson to you I, I hope that the parables you know could be understood just even that much more effectively um, if you're here this morning and you have not put on Christ if you haven't obeyed the gospel um, I firmly believe that if, if we could just see the grace of God if we truly saw it everyone would serve him everyone would unquestionably sign up for the kingdom of heaven and enter into its gates it's pride it's, it's perception it's, it's failing to see what God has done it's failing to see who God is it's failing to see how much he loves us If we understand who he is and what he's done for us, that should move us to action and repentance. If there's anything else we can do for you this morning, we would call you to bring it forward as we stand sing an invitation song.